I grew up in a home with an older brother. He's five years older than me, which naturally meant he was much larger than me. And one time we were coming home from somewhere, I'm not sure where, we were riding the back of the car, and I'm leaned all the way over against the door, the, pat, the door on this side, as far as I can get. And I challenged him to lean all the way over against his door as far as he could get and to reach over and see if he could reach my nose. Now, in my mind, I meant, you know, this kind of motion. But in a five-year-old older brother, five years older than me, he kind of meant this motion. <laughs> and my nose explodes with blood everywhere. And of course, my mom in the front seat is freaking out. And my dad says, don't get blood on the upholstery. <laughs> now, when my brother got to college and I was in high school, I outgrew him in height. And all that nonsense kind of calmed down. Even to this day, I'm bigger than my brother now, so it's good. He kind of leaves me alone. He messes with my kids. <laughs> we are about to enter a season where we are looking at the book of Ephesians together as a church. And we're going to walk through that through the months of June and July. And kind of looking at how God has really blessed us with this book in the New Testament and given this book to us to help us understand Him more and understand what life in Christ is truly about. Today we're going to be talking about cause and effect. Of course, the cause of my bloody nose was the, you know, I'm challenging my brother to do something that he does and the effect is blood everywhere. In Ephesians, we're going to see a cause and effect relationship in a couple of different ways. One is the book is actually kind of two parts, ultimately. The, the first half of the book really deals with who God is, the nature of God, and what God teaches us about Himself as He reveals Himself in His Word. The second half of the book really deals with the Christian life, what it means that as we walk through the Christian life, how that has been affected because of an initial cause. And we'll look at that more as we kind of dig in, because Ephesians 1, 1 through 14, really zeroes in on a cause and effect relationship that we have with God as the basis of our salvation. You also have a chart in your seat, and I know human nature, that everyone right now is reading your chart and not listening. So don't read it yet. It's not going to make a lot of sense until we get to that part, but I'm going to talk to you about what this chart means and how it helps us understand things a little bit better. So we got a lot to learn about Ephesians. we got to learn about Ephesus itself. And as we think about Ephesus, you can see in the book of Acts, they introduce this idea that there's this temple there called the Temple of Artemis. And there, there's a riot and they're shouting, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. This is a massive, it was co considered one of the seven wonders of the world, this, 
this temple that was there. It was representative of pagan idol worship and a lot of different things going on. So the context of this city of Ephesus, which is in modern-day Turkey now, there was a paganism ruled. And in this temple, this was the religion of the people. And so in the background of that, Paul is writing this letter to believers in this city who are walking through life in that way. And he's wanting to open their eyes to a deeper understanding of who God is and open their eyes to walking life in that context. So we're going to look through, we're going to look at that. Um, you know, this Ephesus also was a seaport. And you see it on a map that was actually eventually closed down because of the silt of this river that would wash in. And it actually eventually boats couldn't even go in there. And which is very telling because Ephesus is also, or the church in Ephesians is also mentioned in the book of Revelation at the end. And Jesus issues a warning to that church that they've abandoned their first love. And so there's a lot that's kind of wrapped up in the city itself, but also in the believers who are there, that God has placed there. Um, God is going to show us in Ephesians a magnificent picture of himself and how he ultimately is the one who accomplishes our salvation in Jesus Christ. So let's dig into this a little bit. When we look at Ephesians chapter 1, what you're going to see is you're going to see kind of a layout. Now this is really, this is really interesting. Paul starts with this little intro, which is verses 1 and 2. He's an apostle by the will of God, announcing and proclaiming that, he, that Jesus is the Christ. And he's sending, it says, to the saints. So he's sending this letter to believers in Ephesus. That's how we know that that's what's going on. That are being faithful to Christ Jesus. And then he gives his normal greeting, grace and peace to you. But in verses 3 all the way through 14, Paul reveals us something about himself. He is the king of a run-on sentence. All right? He would not pass any of our schools for essay writing. Verses 3 through 14 is, in the original Greek language, one sentence. 202 words. All right? Can you imagine turning that paper in? You'd be so red with the teacher's handwriting on that page. All right? So he, he jumping, he's jumping into this. He's trying to give us an understanding of this concept. And so many people have tried to break this down so that it's a better understanding. But what we ultimately see here in verses 3 through 14 is something very powerful in this one big sentence. And that we see Paul show us a beautiful picture of who God is as a trinity. So Trinitarian doctrine, which we believe as followers of Jesus Christ, is a very complicated and very difficult to understand concept. It's got a lot of depth to it, and it's like right here at the front, right at the beginning. I'm going to dive into Ephesians, and he's going to tell us and show us that God is Trinitarian in nature. God is three persons. Each person is fully God, but there is one God. And so there are many attempts have been made to try to simplify the Trinity. 
Like one, is, it says the Trinity is like an egg with a yolk and uh, the white of the egg and then the shell. But these attempts, and then you've seen, what you've probably heard one about water. Water exists as a gas, as a liquid, you know, or as a solid. And while these attempts are trying to simplify something that's very difficult for our minds to grasp, they actually take away from the biblical mystery of this doctrine, and while trying to simplify, actually commit heresy. So these simple solutions end up actually denying the doctrine of the Trinity itself, because God doesn't slip in and out of different persons. Sometimes He's the Father, sometimes He's the Spirit, sometimes He's the Son. That's not true. God doesn't do that. There are also some modern Christian traditions that try to look at God and separate God into different epics. Saying, for example, that, that uh, right now we're in the epic of the Spirit Age. See, in the beginning there was the creation by the Father. That was the Father Age. And then He sent the Son who accomplished our redemption. That was the, the Age of the Son. And now we live in the Age of the Spirit. That's false. Because if that was true, then God wouldn't be one. He wouldn't be a trinity. He would be slipping out of all of these at the same time. So, this understanding of God is warped. And it's an actual heresy called modalism, where God changes modes and moves in and out of things. And that's not what he's talking about. That's not what he's revealing in the scriptures about himself. So all these analogies have shortcomings. God cannot be explained in this way. And the Bible actually makes no attempt to explain God in this way. Many of God's character traits have analogous explanations, but never His Trinitarian nature. So when the universe was created by God the Father, speaking creation into existence, God the Son was the divine Word and the agent who carried out the words of God. And the Spirit was active, hovering over the waters that we see in Genesis. All three persons are equally and fully at work, equally and fully divine, and equally and fully eternal. And that's who God is. And that's how He's revealing Himself in the Scriptures. Yet God is also mysterious and other than us. And so we should approach God in this way, in faith and trust, knowing that we will never fully comprehend who God is. And that is why we believe in faith. We trust Him. So in Ephesians, we see the comprehensive and far-reaching doctrine of the Trinity described in chapter 1 and the amazing power of the Gospel. And so this is what's happening. Verses 3-6. through six. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. It says, In love He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will. In verse 3, it talks about these heavenly places. And we're going to get to that as we march further into Ephesians. 
as we understand the meaning of how Christ governs all of creation from His heavenly seat for the sake of His children. And in verse 4, we see that all of this took place before the foundation of the world. This is also referenced in Revelation chapter 17, verse 8, where it says that before even the creation took place, that the names of the followers of Jesus, the names of His believers, were written in the book of life even before the world was created. So we see that we were known, loved, and chosen in Christ before that. But then, when you really dig into the depths of the Greek language here, what's being expressed to us, this is where this chart is going to be helpful for us. So I want you to look at this. All right. So this is going to be a little bit of a grammatical, nerdy kind of thing going on. All right. We're going to be looking at an adverb. There's a specific adverb here in the Greek language that opens up so much depth of understanding of who God is and what he is doing, what is on his heart. And it's in verse 4. In the ESV, verse 4 starts with this word, even. In the NIV, it's the word for. Now, it's connected to another word, that. So, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that. Those two words are an adverbial clause connected in the Greek language to reveal the nature of God so that we can understand something. So here's what's going on. It's this construct that really means a kind of a cause and effect grammatical relationship. And this construct is only found six times in the New Testament. And each time it's found in the New Testament, those six times, it relates to human salvation. So what's happening is this small adverb opens up a world of doctrinal biblical knowledge. And here is how it works. So each time, so in Ephesians 1.4, the cause is related here to that word even. The effect is related to the word that. So here's what it says. We are chosen, that's the cause, in order to be made holy and blameless. That's the effect. You see, this, this really gives us great insight because so many of us were raised in traditions where legalism or moral living was, if I live holy and blameless, therefore God will choose me. Meaning we do the opposite. We think the opposite doctrine of what the Bible teaches. That I will cause the effect of God saving me. And that's not the gospel. That's not good news. If I have to be right and holy and blameless for God to love me, that is bad news. Because I am not capable to morally make the right choices and cause myself to be holy so that God will love me. See, the good news of the gospel is the opposite. That the cause is that He chose me. The effect is that He makes me holy and blameless in Christ Jesus. 
So what about the other five times that this adverbial clause is? John 17, 2. And you can see this. Jesus has the authority to give eternal life. 1 Corinthians 1, 6. A confirmed testimony of the gospel's work in my life leads to me not lacking any gift. The spiritual gifts don't cause God to love me more. God's love for me gives me gifts to fulfill His mission to the world. 1 Corinthians 5, 7. A cleansing has taken place in my life. That's the cause. The effect, I have been made new. I'm a new creation. Romans 1.28. The cause, now this one's kind of, this one's opposite. It flips it. If there is no acknowledgement of God, it will lead to a debased mind. So we can look at that positively. God creates in us a pure mind. And then the last one, Philippians 1.7, someone who's a partaker of grace feels joy. You see how this one word, this one adverb can open up to us a greater understanding of the gospel message of what Christ has done for us and who God is in His very nature. And it says in verse 5, says that He adopted us because of love. Now, he's, he's chosen us as sons, as children, through Jesus Christ. Now, speaking of adoption, you all know about Pastor Lawrence adopting Hudson from China. Right? And there he is. Now, we'll do a little bragging. I got to be the first waypointer <laughs> to lay my hands on Hudson because this, this was just awesome. We show up in the airport Friday, and they come down this corridor, and Hudson just reaches for me. It's great. My wife calls it the Santa Claus effect. <laughs> I don't know why this happens. I can be in public, and strange children walk up to me and smile and wave. And their parents will go, they never do that for anyone else. And I'm like, I, you know, I don't know. I don't know why kids do this to me. Right? So, but what is the great story of the U's right now? Of our pastor and his family? They adopted Hudson. They didn't know Hudson. They never met Hudson. It's not because of some greatness in Hudson that made the youth say, we're going to fly to China and spend all this money and adopt this child because he's great. And there's a greatness in him that's going to make our name even greater. That's not why you adopt a child. Not based on anything Hudson ever did or is ever going to become, the youth loved him and adopted him. He is now their son, forever and always their child. And one day we'll all get to meet him and get to spend time with Hudson. And that's why Pastor Lawrence is not here right now.
the you family are taking some time. Pastor Lawrence is taking a, a time of uh, sabbatical and leave in order to spend time with his new son. But this is what God did for us. Not based on merit or anything great in me. Because if it was, I mean, you all know me. You know he wouldn't choose me. But he loved us. The goal of God's electing salvation is our adoption, which leads us to holiness. And then in verse 6, we see this. It says, To the praise of His glorious grace with which He has blessed us in the beloved. We are blessed in the Son, not because of our merit, but because God is loving. God is eternally sovereign. God is gloriously gracious. God is infinitely wise. And God, as the Father, chose us in love. And that's the Father of the Trinity. And then in verse 7, we transition to learning more about the second person of the Trinity, the Son, in Him. In this Son, we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished. I love that word in Ephesians. I love that Jesus lavishes something on us. Lavished. He's lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will according to His purpose, which He set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Him, things in heaven and things on earth. We find here that redemption is purchased by the Son Blood bought purchase. Now in Ephesians 2, we're going to learn some, something about how we were in the depths of slavery and sin. But ultimately, we are sinners who are saved by the gracious act of a sacrifice on our behalf. Something done for us in our place for our sin. Christ Jesus dying the death I should have died. You see, I'm a rebel sinner against God. I, my, my purpose in life was to bring glory to God. But I cannot. I fail. I utterly fail. Constantly. I'm always sinning. I'm always falling short of the glory of God. Yet, Jesus loves us so much that He would be willing to take the punishment that we deserve. Live the life that I couldn't live. Die the death I should have died rising again and conquering sin and death for all, once for all, for all time. And He applies that to me. See, that's the beauty of it. His perfect life 
and his sacrificial death are applied to me as if I did it. He takes my place. He's the perfect substitute, causing me to be reconciled forever to the Father. It's an amazing story. It's the, the beauty of the, what we call the gospel, the good news. In His great mercy, the Father sent the Son, Jesus, the righteous one, to, to die for us. It's a beautiful message. And now, there's no condemnation, Romans 8. There's no condemnation for those who believe, but only everlasting joy. Salvation is a free gift from God for all who place their trust in Jesus. And this lavished grace gives us forgiveness to be able to walk before Him. And then moving on in verse 11, we see the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, moving into action. In Him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him, who works all things according to the counsel of His will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of His glory. In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. In the New Testament, there's this character named Nicodemus. And he shows up at night looking for Jesus. He's, and he's a Pharisee, so this is why he's coming at night. He's a religious leader, and he's kind of slinking around. He doesn't want to be seen searching for Jesus. So, so he goes in, and he has these questions that he wants to ask Jesus. And Jesus makes this statement. He says to Nicodemus, you must be born again. Now, Nicodemus is puzzled about that. Wait, I'm a grown man. How can I enter a second time into my mother's womb and be born again? And Jesus said, do you, you really claim to be a teacher of Israel, but you don't understand what I'm talking about here? He, and then Jesus makes this statement. He says that the, that the wind blows where it wishes. You don't know where it comes from or where it goes. So Jesus is talking about the Spirit here. And He says it's through the Spirit that someone's born again. Not through flesh and blood, but through an act of the Spirit causing you to be born again. I like John Piper. That guy has written some stuff. Sometimes it's hard to even understand. But he says this, God can turn natural people into spiritual people who love the things of the Spirit. And God can cause people to be born again by the Holy Spirit. Yes. <coughs> he says this. Piper says, slow your theology down. Because maybe we say these things too quickly. Perhaps we ought to sit stunned for seven days with torn clothes and dust on our head and utter silence like Job and his friends when we're presented with this great doctrine of salvation. Stunned that no one 
will enter the kingdom of God unless he is born twice. Not just once. Born by a power, not his own, that blows like wind according to its own will. We should sit stunned that we are like shipwrecked sailors stranded on a raft with a makeshift sail made out of a shirt, utterly and absolutely lost. Unless, and we don't know how, the wind blows. We need to stop and let ourselves feel the plight that Jesus said that Nicodemus was in. He said that Nicodemus was in a room where all the door handles were too high for him to reach. That's where we are. Salvation is not attainable by any human act or will. Freedom from sin is not possible on my own. I cannot attain it. I cannot reach high enough. I cannot do anything that would cause God to love me more or anything that would cause God to love me less because His love for me is not based on my own merit. It is based on on Christ alone. And that's why in Ephesians it starts this way. Because it's not about me living a holy and blameless life in order to reach salvation. It's about me being saved by Christ, which is going to lead me to living holy and blameless in His sight. <coughs> Excuse me. I'll never forget the day that I was sitting at a cafe in Casablanca. I had been sharing the gospel with this guy for a really long time, walking him through the power of the sacrifice of Jesus. And it was during Ramadan, which is right now with Muslims all across the world, celebrating this religious holiday where they fast from sunup to sundown all day during the daylight hours they fast and they hate it when Ramadan is during the summer because it's longer and during that time they're seeking Allah they're seeking him because they're trying their hardest to be good enough worthy enough for Allah to actually hear them pray. Tonight is actually called the night of power, where they believe that this, this moment, that maybe really Allah will hear them. So we're going to have a special time of prayer for Muslims all around the world tonight, here. But I remember it was during Ramadan, I was talking to my friend, talking to him about the sacrifice of Jesus. And Muslims believe that Abraham sacrificed his son and that that son was substituted because a lamb showed up. They know that story, an Old Testament story that we share in common with them. And they believe something a little different about it. But ultimately, they believe that this sheep 
took the place of Abraham's son. Well, I bridged that story with the story of Jesus being the Lamb of God. I'm sharing the gospel with this guy. And all of a sudden he goes, I get it. I see what Jesus has done. I see what the I I see this. He's the substitute. He's the lamb. He's the one that took my place. <coughs> and I'll never forget what he said. He's sitting there, his cafe. We're sitting with our backs against the wall, and he says this. I feel like I'm being born again. I feel like I'm being born again. Yeah. You know what was happening? The Holy Spirit showed up. And revitalized this guy. Brought him to life. Just worked the redemptive sacrifice of Jesus into this guy's life. And powerfully awakened him from death to life. He didn't do it through Ramadan prayer. I didn't do it through telling him a special story. Jesus did it. Through his death on the cross, the Holy Spirit did it. By applying Jesus' death, the Father did it. By sending the Son to begin with. And they all did it together. And they all worked simultaneously. And they all did it based on the foundation of love. We understand salvation when we understand our desperate situation. We understand also that once the Holy Spirit applies that redemption to our life, Ephesians tells us we are sealed. This is the idea that the kings would wear this ring, the signet ring, would have the seal. And when a king would put a piece of wax on a letter and then press his ring into that, that is an that's an official letter. Thank you. Appreciate that. That's an official letter. Meaning, if you open this letter without the king's permission, you die. But it also means that this being sealed by the king is the king's edict and will be forever. This is what's going on here. Is that... The Spirit is pressed into us like a, the signet ring of God. That we are sealed by the King. We are official King's business. We are the children of God. Man, alive, that's powerful. Because then, as children of the King, we have the inheritance. Like sons and daughters, we actually have the inheritance. It's sealed assurance and a guarantee forever. It will never go away. And all of this is working simultaneously for His glory and our good. <clears throat> so this morning, what is Ephesians chapter 1 inviting us to do? inviting us to worship. I am inviting you to listen. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Word of God is saying about our God. That we would bow in reverence and awe before the Father, lifting our hands in praise to the Son and feeling the wind of the Holy Spirit blowing on us. 
we would declare the majesty of the Father, praising the sacrifice of the Son, and experiencing the power of the Holy Spirit, all at work simultaneously in our redemption, purchasing us from slavery and death. In the Greco-Roman world in which this letter would have been written, Ephesus was a city in the Greco-Roman world, Adoptees, children who are adopted into families, were often members already of the father's extended relations. In the case of believers, see, this would have been radical for the Greco-Roman world to hear this. Because in the case of believers here, God has taken the most distant foreigners to be his kin. For an inheritance of his entire estate. Not the deserving or good, says Romans 5. Not the many that are well-born or powerful or wise or have the right DNA. But those who are, as Ephesians 2 will later say, those who are by nature, not as kin at all, but children of wrath. And darkened sons of disobedience. Those are the words that were used for us. We were his helpless, wicked, sinful enemies living in the realm of darkness. But you see, God does not place these new children into a subordinate, inferior family. He appoints them all to become co-heirs with his natural firstborn son in whom the whole creation is, and it says in Ephesians, summarized. For us to co-rule over all things with Him, as those who have been co-seated with Christ in the heavenly realms. These stupendous acts of divine grace that we are seeing here, they have no parallel in the ancient world. None at all. It would be unthinkable to them that the Roman emperor would adopt a slave from the most barbaric places in the world and make them an emperor. But that's what Christ has done. And no wonder Paul says, in praise of the glory of His grace, which He has bestowed on us in His beloved. So how do we respond to this? First of all, we need to examine our hearts. We need to see deeply into our own selves the work of Christ. We need to humble ourselves knowing that we are sinners. We need to be desperate for the work of the triune God in our lives. So I want to ask you to take a moment and respond. We're just going to have a time of just worship right now, where you are. We normally, as a church, we have a congregational time of prayer where all of us are praying for something specifically, a topic or something going on in the world, and those are good. We should, as a church, pray for our world. But after studying Ephesians 1, I was inclined today that our time of congregational prayer would be focused on the congregation. That you would be invited 
to spend a moment in prayer. Because can we hear the message of salvation and not respond? For those of us who are believers, it, the response is worship. Declaring and seeing and, and just savoring the majesty of the King. For those in this room who are not believers, this message is meant to prick your heart. To make you start thinking about who God is and how He loves you and how He wants to bring you from death to life in His Son. And so that's how it's two, two responses here. So where you are, I just want you to take a moment. There's going to be some music playing. To just focus on that and just worship. And then the band is actually going to come up and start playing in our time of worship together.